This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, standoff between Russia and Ukraine. Is conflict imminent or is a diplomatic off-ramp still within reach? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Is Russian President Vladimir Putin planning to reinvade Ukraine or is he testing and taunting the West as he challenges the post-World War II European order? Long before the Kremlin began massing tens of thousands of troops along the borders of Ukraine, it had already invaded that sovereign country in 2014 and illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula. Russia-backed rebels continue to destabilize the Donbass region of southeastern Ukraine, where more than 14,000 people have been killed in fighting between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed rebels. Concerned that a larger Russian invasion of Ukraine may be imminent, U.S. President Joe Biden has placed 8,500 U.S. military troops on heightened alert for possible deployment to Europe. He spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on January 27 to reaffirm U.S. readiness, along with its allies, to respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. That response could include crippling economic sanctions and export controls on critical sectors of the Russian economy, like banning the export to Russia of products that use microelectronics software and technology. Other measures under consideration include cutting off Russian banks' access to the dollar and sanctions on Russian energy exports. At the request of Moscow, the Biden administration and NATO submitted written statements in response to Moscow's demands that Ukraine be banned from joining NATO and that the West pull back its troop deployments and military equipment from Eastern Europe. As they had publicly stated numerous times, Washington and NATO firmly rejected these ultimatums as non-starters, but outlined areas in which some of Russia's concerns could be addressed, like offensive missile placements, military exercises in Eastern Europe, and broad arms control agreements, but only if Russia removes its massive troop presence along the Ukrainian borders and stops its disinformation campaign that sows division and discord. Not surprisingly, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the U.S.'s reply to its demands, quote, contains no positive response, unquote. Meantime, it has been widely reported that Washington is calling for a meeting of the U.N. Security Council on Monday, January 31, to discuss the standoff over Ukraine. For more on what's behind Russia's aggression toward Ukraine and NATO and how to effectively counter it, we turn to two distinguished experts, Will Pomerantz is deputy director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center and Andrea Kendall-Taylor. She's senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. And both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Let me begin with you, Andrea Kendall-Taylor. Of course, here we are. One year ago, we were talking about the Russian troop buildup. Now we're at a critical juncture. This is the $64 million question. Do you think, Andrea, that Putin is willing to negotiate, not just issue unreasonable demands that would roll Europe back to the Soviet era, or does he plan to invade or perhaps something in between like a, a massive cyber attack or partial invasion? 
Well, that is indeed the million dollar question. And as you said, Carol, it is a critical juncture. I would say that the diplomatic path is not yet dead. And as you said in your introduction, the United States has submitted its written response to Russia. As you also said, the Russians' high level statements indicate their disappointment with the response in large part because it did not address their priority issue, which is no Ukraine and NATO. So I think in the coming days, we will have a better sense of where this is likely to go. The United States, I think, and its European allies have given President Putin a very clear choice. They have laid several issues, as you mentioned, on the table for discussion. They've said they would be willing to talk about, as you said, missile placement exercises and conventional arms control. So far, that does not appear to be the discussion that Russia wants to have. And so my sense is that we are inching closer to conflict. I think that conflict is now certainly more likely than not. And that is in large part not just because of the Russian official statements, but also because of the sustained troop buildup on the border. They continue to mobilize their forces. They've put forces into Belarus. They're beginning joint exercises with Belarus that will run through February 20th. And so I think for all these reasons, we're getting closer to conflict. I keep coming back to this question of why Putin would be willing to expand such resources to mobilize his military this way if he wasn't planning to use it. So I unfortunately think we're nearing the end of diplomacy and that conflict is indeed the most likely scenario. Will Pomerantz, are we nearing the end of diplomacy and that conflict is indeed very possible? Diplomacy is not yet dead, as Andrea said, but things do not look good on the ground. No, they do not look good on the ground. And I think the question, and this expands on Andrea's answer, is whether Putin willingly or unwillingly has backed himself into a corner and doesn't have a avenue to retreat. He has put all these troops on the border. He has ratcheted up the rhetoric. He has heightened the supposed threats on Russian sovereignty. And Putin can try to backtrack, but it will be very difficult. The second reason why I think attack is more likely than not, as Andrea said, is that this is Putin's chance to deal with Ukraine. And obviously, Ukraine has been on Putin's mind for decades. And I don't know if Putin will have a better opportunity to deal with Ukraine than today. He has military strength. Ukraine is divided. The allies are united, but not totally united. So the question is whether this is a now or never moment for Putin. If he doesn't have a avenue to backtrack, he doesn't show a willingness for off-ramps. And so I agree that under the current scenario, it is more likely than not that Putin will engage, whether it's a massive assault on Ukraine, whether it's a cyber attack on Ukraine, whether it's air power or amphibious assault on Ukraine. All those options are on the table. But I think this is the most favorable moment for Putin, which means that it is more likely than not that he would try to use it for his advantage. So back to you, Andrea Kendall-Taylor. So if indeed some sort of attack, whether cyber or partial invasion is imminent and that Vladimir Putin really doesn't have a good off-ramp to save face and he's always wanted to stick it to Ukraine, so to speak, what do you envision will happen? I mean, do you have a couple of scenarios that may play out, cyber attacks, partial invasion, and 
two-part question. And will the punishing sanctions that would come into play, should he do that, give him any kind of pause? So I think, as Will said, there's many scenarios, different ways that this could unravel. And again, President Putin really is the only one who's going to know. My sense is that he'll be kind of feeling his way through this to kind of figure out what approach is most likely to help him accomplish his ultimate objectives. My sense is that he's really after two things. First, I think he wants constitutional change to devolve some autonomy to the regions in the east that would effectively give Russia a veto over you. Ukraine's foreign policy. And I think he's after closing the door for Ukraine into NATO. Those are significant demands. And I think in order to achieve them, he is going to have to, A, topple the Zelensky government, because I think Putin was very optimistic that when Zelensky came into power, that he would be willing to deal on the Minsk agreements. That's turned out not to be the case. And if anything, he's taken Ukraine in a more anti-Russian direction. So I think he is intent on toppling the Zelensky government. And I think in order to extract the NATO concessions from either Kiev or the United States and its NATO allies, he's going to need a commanding military position. So it may come through massive cyber attacks and standoff strikes. As we've been talking about, it could also come from a major ground invasion where they essentially encircle Kiev and say, well, you know, how about now? Are you going to be willing to have a discussion about our demands at this point? So my sense is I see kind of some of these higher end scenarios as more likely because those seem like the measures needed in order for Putin to accomplish the objectives that I think he's after. And then very quick on your sanctions question, I unfortunately don't think that the sanctions are going to be the deterrent. I think there's probably questions in Putin's mind about unity between the United States and Europe and how far Europe will be willing to go. And I think, you know, as Peter was saying, this has been a long-standing objective for Putin to finally deal with this Ukraine question. So I don't think that things like sanctions are enough to deter him from accomplishing these longstanding objectives. It's important that we still move forward with them in order to make this as costly for Putin as possible and to, I think, signal to other onlooking leaders that there are costs for revisionist actions. But as a deterrent in and of themselves, I think that's not enough. So back to Will. Andrea accidentally called you Peter, Will. But that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not a problem. I don't know. Peter the Great. Your turn turn to respond to, you know, how far Putin is willing to go and that these sanctions, notwithstanding, they're very punishing in nature and very different from the ones imposed before, that he will go forward because he is determined to get Ukraine uh, back into the fold and to prevent it from joining NATO, not that that's, you know, anywhere near in the near future. That's the irony here. And that the potential cracks in the alliance could encourage him. And we'll talk about those cracks in a minute, but your reaction. I think Putin believes that he has survived several rounds of sanctions and that he can survive another round of sanctions. Whether that is true or not, we will have to wait and see. And we will have to wait and see how severe the sanctions are and how united the Western allies are in enforcing those sanctions. Those are two big ifs. But President Putin has always concentrated on rebuilding Russia and not rebuilding the economy. And that is due to the 1990s when Russia went cup in hand to the IMF because it essentially had no money. So Russia under Putin has not really emphasized diversification of the economy, economic growth. Putin has allowed significant capital to go abroad because Russians do not trust leaving their capital in the Russian Federation. So from my perspective, 
I think Putin believes he can survive any sort of sanctions, and he has a record of surviving. And that is what he believes, I think, he can do during this crisis. And finally, he has built up a war chest of over $600 billion of hard currency reserves. Whether that would have better been invested in the economy and economic growth, we can debate. But Putin has always thought that he needed this bulk of reserves and savings for any rainy day and for any crisis. And obviously, if he attacks Ukraine, it will be raining. One quick point, Carol, if I can. Will is entirely right. And I think there's one additional factor, and that is his deepening relationship with Xi Jinping. I also think he feels that he has Xi in his corner and that China will be there to some degree to help mitigate the Western pressure. So, you know, entirely agree with what Will said. Well, that's a great point. And one more thing, though, with regard to China, many analysts are saying that if he did any kinetic action, that he probably would wait until the Beijing Olympics are over so as not to upstage Mr. Xi Jinping. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Will Pomerantz, Deputy Director of the Cannon Institute at the Wilson Center, and Andrea Kendall-Taylor, from whom you just heard. She's Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. We're discussing the crisis over Ukraine as Russia's more than 100,000 troops and military exercises threaten Ukraine's sovereignty and the geostrategic contours of Europe. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan from a NATO ally, I may add, Tahir Merchan Ozman. He's based in Kadikoy, Turkey. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, turning back to you, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, both of you alluded to potential cracks in the NATO alliance. These are democracies. It's understandable that there would be differences, but many say that at the end of the day and when push comes to shove, they will totally unite against aggressive moves by Russia. But I wanted to get you to talk about these potential cracks that President Putin may exploit, particularly if you could address Germany's reluctance to send weapons, for example, to Ukraine and to jeopardize the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline with Russia. I want to start by saying I think that the degree of unity and cohesion we've seen in the alliance is actually quite remarkable. Um, We're talking about 30 different NATO allies along with partners. And if you step back to where we were in October, which is when the United States States started warning about unusual military activity on Ukraine's border, we didn't have a common threat picture. And since then, we've worked with allies to build consensus about what's happening. We've been coordinating potential responses to a whole range of Russian potential actions. The United States, President Biden has put troops 8,500 on high readiness, as has NATO. You know, I think that degree of unity is actually quite remarkable. There have been some kind of bumps and bruises along the way, and certainly we We've had some probably less than desirable comments and actions coming out of Berlin. But let's remember, too, that this is a brand new coalition government with many folks there who have not been in this type of situation before. I think they're moving in the right direction. Of course, Olaf Scholz is coming to see President Biden in early February. So although we've had, I think, some questions and probably would have hoped that we would have seen stronger statements coming from Berlin, I do think that we're moving in the right direction. They've been a little bit clearer about stating that Nord Stream 2 would be on the table if Russia should 
should escalate. And I am confident that if President Putin were to invade Ukraine, that the allies would be standing shoulder to shoulder. We might have more questions about some of these low end kind of less intense scenarios. I mean, President Biden made that comment about minor incursions. And of course, it's you know maybe unfortunate that he said that in public, but it reflects a bit of concern that if President Putin uses some kind of hybrid tactics, stays in the realm of cyber and other kind of destabilizing methods, that it might be harder for the United States and its European allies to agree exactly on how we calibrate a response to those types of actions. But again, I think it's just worth underscoring just what a remarkable job the Biden administration has done in working and coordinating with allies. And I am confident that when push comes to shove, the alliance is ready. Will Pomerantz, are you confident as well that if push comes to shove, the alliance is ready and that President Biden has done quite a great job of uniting our alliance members. I agree with Andrea that Biden has done a lot of work to shore up the alliance and to address some of the concerns of NATO countries. I will just raise three issues going forward that I think are cracks that could really develop into major splits. One is the Nord Stream issue. Germany has said that it potentially could sanction Nord Stream, but it will be a very cold day in Berlin and in many other European capitals if Russia decides to weaponize energy and basically shut off the gas. So how will Europe respond if indeed at the height of winter everyone is left in the cold? Another issue that I see looming is the question of whether the allies will be united to kick Russia out of the SWIFT bank messaging system. In many ways, this is the biggest sanction that can be introduced. It would isolate Russia from the international payment system. And the early signs show that at least Germany is very unwilling to kick Russia out of SWIFT, primarily because it does a lot of business with Russia. And indeed, the Europeans have much more to lose economically on these sanctions than the United States. So that's the second variable. And the third variable that I'm still trying to figure out is what is President Macron want to do? Clearly, he talked to Putin today. France has a history of conducting an independent foreign policy. Mr. Macron is running for re-election, so I'm not sure exactly if Mr. Macron will try to do something to break the logjam diplomatically that might be perceived as breaking the alliance or putting a barrier between the United States and its European allies. Well, Andrea, Kendall, Taylor, we can always count on Will to uh, bring us down to reality in terms of uh, his skepticism hey, about we Russia. We're always brought down <laughs> to reality. I know. Well, there's no question about it. Uh, Europe is greatly dependent on Russia. Gas supplies about 40 percent. And the question of SWIFT, which would be a very uh, punishing sanction, is also up in the air, I guess, because of Germany. But I guess we won't know until the time comes. We will be testing the unity of the alliance and the ability or the willingness to impose these sanctions. But feel free to comment on that. But I'd like to ask you about your context in Ukraine. What are you hearing? You know, there are some mixed messages. President Zelensky is telling the country, no, to be calm, you know, everything's in hand, that he doesn't want to panic people, get a run on the banks. On the other hand, he's telling the United States and allies, there is no small invasion or big invasion. You know, we are really threatened, our existence, our sovereignty. This is an affront to the post-World War II order. Whether they join NATO or not, their border should not be at risk. What are you hearing in terms of Ukraine? And are they ready? Will they mount a resistance? 
Well, I think there, and this is not coming from Ukraine, but on the U.S. side, some frustration at lower levels in the U.S. government with President Zelensky. Obviously, after the phone call between Zelensky and Biden, there were kind of mixed messages coming out of that call. My sense is that it stems in part because Zelensky has so many different audiences that he needs to message to. The Ukrainians have been living under constant threat from Russia, you know, really since 2014, but for a very long time. And so there is a desire by President Zelensky to try to avoid having any panic in the country. And clearly that has been at odds with what the United States is trying to do to kind of prepare Ukrainians to continue to fight. So maybe a little bit of mismatch in messaging, which has created some tensions in the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. But broadly speaking, I mean, I do think that you see consistent support from the United States for Ukraine. We continue to see the weapon shipments being delivered, the United States giving more military assistance this year since 2014. So a really a, a strong effort by the United States to try to enhance Ukrainians' ability to fight and defend themselves. And that certainly, I think, is the message that we hear coming out of Ukraine, that Ukrainians are ready to fight. And that's in a really important message because I do think that President Putin is perhaps underestimating just how difficult a fight this might be for him. I think, you know, he has a track record of miscalculation in Ukraine. There's lots of questions about the quality of information that he gets as a highly personalized authoritarian leader. And so it is important that Ukrainians continue to express their desire to fight so that he doesn't overestimate just how easy this will be. And I guess the final point I will say is, you know, after following Putin for much of my career, I think this is the riskiest step that he has taken. Certainly, Ukraine in 2014 caught us by surprise. Russia going into Syria in 2015 was also a surprise. But this really, I think, is just substantively different in many ways. And it is quite possible that Putin is miscalculating here, in large part because Ukrainians are very likely to be able to continue to fight to maintain their sovereignty and their territorial integrity. Will Pomerantz, what are you hearing from your colleagues in Ukraine about their willingness to defend their sovereignty and territorial integrity? Are they up for the potential fight that may be coming? I'm hearing that Ukraine is unified and ready to fight and ready to put up a strong defense. Now, whether the current Ukrainian army can do that, that will only become apparent when they are tested. Since I've been accused of bringing us down to reality, though, I'll raise two issues, at least one issue, about a future attack on Ukraine. Zelensky, I fear, well, I know is not an experienced politician. He is an actor. Uh, he's been <laughs> on the job two and a half years. Is he capable of rallying Ukraine in a case of an invasion, especially at a time when his popularity has been declining? So there is a question about the leadership of Zelensky in a time of crisis. I would say that now is not the time to go after former presidents and accuse them of treason. If yes. you're looking to have a united front against Russia, and the last thing I'll say is there's been all these rumors about a coup d'etat and the British foreign ministry published who potentially might be a minister in a puppet government. And I would say that they were not an impressive group and that if they actually were to participate in a coup d'etat, their political careers and indeed their futures as a citizen of Ukraine would be much in doubt. I think Ukrainians have rallied 
at several times against such a coup d'etat or an attempt to usurp power. And I think Ukrainian civil society will react. And the question would be how much violence is Russia willing to tolerate to put that down? Well, that's excellent. And very briefly, before we close, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, we've been talking about Ukraine. What about in Russia, notwithstanding the amounts of disinformation they're getting, but they certainly know that there's a drumbeat to war. Does Russian public opinion, much of which I think is not really in favor of kinetic action, to what extent will that be a concern for Russia? So as you said, the disinformation is a real thing in Russia. And when you look at public polling, a significant number of Russians believe that Ukraine and NATO in the United States are to blame for the current tension. So they have been working very hard to frame this current conflict, this crisis and Russian aggression as once again besieged Russia. Russia is the victim. I agree that Putin is sensitive to casualties, but my sense is that Putin feels quite secure in his domestic standing. And that's in large part because of the very significant increase in repression inside Russia. Putin believes that he has the domestic situation under control. For now, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Will Pomerantz, Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center, and Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program, the Center for a New American Security. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America.